Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of CliffCast. Oh wait, it's actually not the first episode of CliffCast. For those of you that uh, listened to me in the past, up until 10 years ago I did have a podcast called CliffCast. Unfortunately, last time around, it got to be that I was trying to outdo myself. Every episode had to be that little bit better, throwing in special effects, you know, sounds and things like that. This time around, I'm going to try and keep it simple. I mean, I'm, there are going to be some produced segments, but I'm also going to wing it a whole lot more. And I'm going to have a lot of fun with it, I'm sure. And I hope you do too. Anyway, enough about that. Let's go on with the show. Testing one, two, three. You are listening to Cliffcast. Cliffcast is now on the air. There are nearly always some wonderful, fascinating, amazing, bizarre, strange, silly, or just plain weird new things to discover. Well, new to me anyway. I thought it might be fun to set aside a few moments in each episode to share one or two of them with you. Keep in mind that while some of these facts are weird and wonderful, others are bound to be totally useless bits of trivia. So, here we go. Well, it's almost Halloween, so I thought we'd start this first segment with some Halloween facts. Question number one. Who is the Jack in Jack-o'-lantern? Well, this month, thousands of us will scoop out the flesh of a gourd carefully carve a haunting face into its rind, and stick a candle inside. The creations are called jack-o'-lanterns, and they will be proudly displayed on porches and stoops everywhere. But who or what is the namesake of this autumn tradition? Well, jack has been a general term for a boy since the 1500s. And for this reason, it found its way into many childhood songs and rhymes. The British can claim ownership of the original use of the phrase jack-o'-lantern in the 17th century. It referred to a night watchman, a man who literally carried a lantern. But jack-o'-lantern was also a name for strange flickering lights seen 
at night over wetlands or peat bogs and mistaken for fairies or ghosts. This natural phenomenon is also called ignis fatuus or foolish fire, friar's lantern or will-o'-the-wisp. By the mid-1800s, what was called a turnip lantern became known as a jack-o'-lantern. Young boys used these hollowed out and lit up root vegetables to spook people. Irish legend has it that this use of jack-o'-lantern was named after a fellow named Stingy Jack. Well, Stingy Jack thought he'd trick the devil, but the devil had, last, had the last laugh condemning Jack to an eternity of wandering the planet with only an ember of hellfire for light. Jack's lanterns were carved out of potatoes, turnips and other such vegetables in Scotland and Ireland, while beets were used in England. When immigrants brought this custom to North America, pumpkins, being so plentiful, became the vegetable of choice. And that's how that tradition all began. I found that interesting. How about you? Good day. This is Sean Connery. Sure, I like to drink martinis and shag beautiful women. But my favorite pastime is listening to Cliffcast. It's very classy. Okay, let's move on to number two. Where did the term trick-or-treat come from? Trick-or-treat is a Halloween practice in which children wearing costumes go from door to door in a neighborhood saying trick-or-treat when a door is opened to ask for treats with the implied threat of playing tricks on those who refuse. The phrase is a subtle suggestion that if a treat like candy is given, then the child will not perform a trick, mischief on the owner of the house. In the Middle Ages, poor people in Ireland and Britain would go souling on Hallowmass, November 1st. Souling consisted of going door to door asking for food in return for saying prayers for the dead in All Souls Day, November 2nd. Guising, the custom of wearing costumes, masking or other forms of disguise, began in Scotland in the late 19th century. Scottish children hoped to prevent evil spirits from doing harm by dressing like them. They carried lanterns made of hollow turnips and at various homes asked for treats such as cakes, fruit and candy. Immigrants brought these local customs to North America in the early 20th century. The custom of trick-or-treating started in the western United States and Canada and slowly moved eastward. The custom stalled during World War II because sugar was rationed during that time. From the 1950s onward, however, the custom picked up steam and has been the central focus of Halloween ever since. Today, Halloween trick-or-treating is big business. The National Confectioners Association estimates 
that over 75% of U.S. adults give out candy every year to trick-or-treaters. As recently as 2015, Halloween candy, costumes and related products brought in almost $7 billion in revenue. Hi, when I'm not governing the state of California and killing people in all my movies, I'm listening to Cliffcast. You should listen, I'll hunt you down and tell you how they'll through your chest. Okay, so now I think it's time to lighten things up a little bit with a little segment I like to call... And now, Jokes of the Week. Jokes of the Week. (laughs) Oh, now that's funny. That's not funny. Since the coronavirus outbreak, my 47-year-old son has been washing his hands religiously. In fact, he said... I've been washing my hands so much, I found answers to an old 8th grade math quiz. (laughs) Scientists finally discovered how to communicate with dolphins. And it turns out they've discovered the secret to an elixir, which allows you to live forever. However, they are missing one ingredient. And it can only be found on a remote island where a rare breed of seagull nests. The ingredients they are missing is contained in the gull's eggs. A further complication is that man-eating lions live on the island. The scientists agree to visit the island and retrieve the eggs and hit upon the plan of waiting until the lions are sleeping before attempting to collect the eggs. They succeed but are instantly arrested. The police report stated they were transporting underage gulls across state lines for immortal porpoises. So there was this proposed reality show. The idea was to shoot a hardcore reality show about the military. They set up a scenario inside this room. In this room is a table seated behind which is a woman. Their order is to kill the person inside the room and they are given a pistol and unbeknownst to them loaded with blanks. Whoever's willing to pull the trigger gets the show. The producers get a service member from each of the main branches and brings them in one at a time. First man's an airman. The producer says, okay, you need to kill whoever is in that room. The airman goes pale and leaves without a word. Next is a Navy seaman. The order is given and he responds with hesitation. I signed on for college man not to kill people. I'm out. Following him is a soldier of the army. He responds enthusiastically with a hell yeah, grabs the gun and heads into the room. After a moment, he heads back out and sets the gun down unfired. Looks the producer in the eye and says, I can't shoot an unarmed woman. By this time, the producer is getting frantic that his show won't be made. The last one, a Marine, walks in and the same order is given. You need to kill whoever's in that room. Can you do it? The Marine responds with a nod and picks up the pistol. The Marine walks out holding a table leg covered in blood. The producer immediately asks what happened. The Marine tosses the pistol down. 
and looks him right in the eye. Some dumbass put blanks in your gun, so I had to improvise. Mission accomplished. Marines get it done. <laughs> Saddle up, partner. Gonna be a long, dusty trail ahead of us. Did you bring your iPod? What? What do you mean they ain't invented it yet? Well then, how the hell are we gonna listen to Cliffcast? I hope you're feeling fit. It's one hell of a long walk home. Hey, thanks for listening. You've been a wonderful audience. We'll see you again another time. Bye for now. Hello everyone, and welcome to episode 4 of Cliffcast. Today we've got wacky web news, a short story by me called My Man Schmedley, and we've got jokes of the week. So let's get on with the show, shall we? Alright. Just do one, two, three. You are listening to Cliffcast. Cliffcast is now on the air. Cliffcast presents Wacky Web News. All the news that's weird, wild, and yes, you guessed it, wacky. And here's what's coming up on today's episode. Divers find lost camera underwater and retrieve something unbelievable inside. 
Colorado Park Bathroom wins America's Best Restroom Contest. And Grow Your Own Human Steaks Meal Kit are not technically cannibalism, makers say. And now, here's Cliff. A team of Canadian diving students on a dive were 40 feet into the waters near Vancouver Island off of Agula Point, British Columbia, and stumbled across a camera. The team of divers rushed back to the lab to further explore it, and while the camera itself was barely recognizable, completely corroded and covered in marine mysteries, the research team was blown away by what they found inside of it. Students Bo Doherty and Tella Osler delved beneath the ocean's surface for their last dive of the spring semester, looking for starfish and other marine species swimming about the sea, around 40 feet beneath the surface. Of course, they were excited to witness all sorts of cool aquatic life and underwater secrets, but they never would have expected to find a piece of treasure that looked like it was out of a modern-day pirate movie. Talk about an exciting way to end a semester. With Seal Brown Gray, a BMSC diving and safety officer, and Isabel M. Cote, a professor of marine ecology overseeing their research mission from the boat, the students came back to the surface with something so unexpected that even the two supervisors were baffled to see. One of the students had picked the object up and put it in his pocket and kept counting the starfish. When they came up from the dive, he said, Look what I found, Professor Cody shared with ABC News. As soon as the students brought the object up to the boat, the whole team started to examine this piece of potential treasure. It was almost impossible to identify exactly what the piece was based on its condition, but it looked like a corroded camera covered in rust and all sorts of marine species. Even though the camera didn't seem to function, a group of research divers decided to return it back to the lab for further investigation, especially since the condition of the camera was such a unique condition. Taking apart the camera, they noticed that while its outside was either corroded or had transformed into a mini aquatic habitat, when they opened up the side of the camera, they saw that there was a memory card covered in some sort of black matter. Professor Gray's initial thoughts were whether or not the camera contained any images or files. And as soon as she saw that there was a memory stick inside the camera at the lab, she carefully pulled it out using tweezers in order to maintain its status and not damage it any further, if it wasn't already too far gone. They found an amazing piece of treasure that was potentially filled with historical value, especially since there was a memory card that could answer all of their questions, like who did this camera belong to, how long had it been lost at sea, and what hidden secrets were about to be unveiled. Gray cleaned off the memory card carefully and connected it to her computer, Miraculously enough, the SD card connected and actually worked. It was full of photographs, a couple of videos, and we saw the very last thing that had been recorded was on July 30th, 2012, Cody shared with the ABC News. As they were going through the photos, there was a couple of particular files that stood out to Professor Gray. The first was what looked like a family or group photo, and the second was the video file that was recorded on July 30th, 2012, the most recent file captured. The video was a recording of the full moon over the serene Vancouver waters recorded minutes before midnight. Once they realized that the camera was filled with all sorts of precious family photos, the team was determined to find the owner, and since these files struck an emotional chord with Professor Gray, she figured they just might be what helps them uncover the true camera's keeper. Professor Cote utilized modern technology and focused on a quintessential approach. She took some pictures off of the SD card and uploaded them along with one of the big photos to her Twitter account. After seeing the photo on community message boards, a local Banfield Coast Guard declared that he recognized someone in the picture. It turns out the Coast Guard was working those very same areas and was actually there when the camera sunk. 
As luck would have it, they found the name to the man the Coast Guard recognized, Paul Burgoyne, without hesitation. As soon as they found his contact information, they quickly reached out to Paul. We were surprised, but really appreciate the people who went to that extent to find me and return our photos. That was very kind, Paul shared with ABC News. So how exactly did the camera end up 40 feet below the water surface? The photo and video that were found on Paul's camera were of a heartbreaking family affair that occurred that weekend. They were all there gathered around together to spread Paul's mother's ashes, who had recently passed away. But during an attempt to sail on his beautiful vessel, the bootlegger, a 300-mile journey from Vancouver back to his summer house in Tarsus, Paul ran into some more unfortunate luck. The professor explained to ABC News, it turns out Paul was a little bit lost and in rough waters, and he thought the boat was on autopilot, but it wasn't, and it hit rocks. In the midst of the dark, cool night, he had no choice but to jump off his precious 30-foot vessel while she sank in front of him. Paul awaited on the rocks in the middle of the cold night for about six hours until someone came around. All alone in the cold, dark night after abandoning his beloved boat, the bootlegger, can you imagine how he must have felt? Thankfully, though, Paul wasn't as alone as he thought. At the top of the cliff is an inn, and there were people there by chance at the inn who called the Coast Guard, which is next door. Professor Cody further explained to ABC, Thankfully, Paul was safely rescued by the local Coast Guardsman, and the very next day, he decided to travel back to where the shipwreck occurred to see if he could conjure up any belongings that were floating around and still in reach. Unfortunately, though, the camera filled with all of his precious, irreplaceable, loving family mementos were long gone. Or so we thought. Never did Paul or his wife imagine that these photos would be returned to them safe and sound. Talk about a happy ending. My wife and I just laughed and laughed and laughed. Finding the camera from a team of divers, to us, was never the full story. To us, the story was, we challenged Mother Nature and almost lost our lives, Paul revealed to ABC News. After hearing the full story of the memory card and Paul's intense battle with the rough Canadian waters, the professors and students were even more moved by the whole situation. Along with having such a unique item to research, a corroded camera filled with tons of aquatic life and marine mysteries, they were beyond glad to have helped the owner of the camera unite with the irreplaceable and sentimental pictures. Chintus Corporation named the public restroom in Bancroft Park in Colorado Springs, Colorado as America's best bathroom for the 19th annual contest. The high-tech restroom self-cleans after every 30 uses. Featuring a touchless automatic toilet paper, soap and water dispenser and hand dryer. An app which alerts the park maintenance supervisor whenever supplies are running low. We're very proud to win this award since opening these new restaurants just a few short months ago. Karen Palace, director of Colorado Springs Recreation and Cultural Services said in a statement, the amount of recognition received is a testament to the value people place in hygienic and memorable public restrooms. The bathroom went viral this summer after TikToker Yeti Tears featured it in a video that drew millions of views. He showed how the door opens with the push of a button and slides like something out of Star Wars. At the time, a memo displayed showed that 7,800 people had used the facilities in just two weeks. It is state-of-the-art, he said in the video. A DIY meal kit for growing steaks made from human cells was recently nominated for Design of the Year by the London-based Design Museum. Named the Ouroboros steak after the circular symbol of a snake eating itself tail first, the hypothetical kit would come with everything one needs to use their own cells to grow miniature human meat steaks. 
People think that eating oneself is cannibalism, which technically this is not, Grace Knight, one of the designers, told DZine magazine. Growing an Ouroboros steak would take about three months using cells taken from inside your cheek, the magazine reported. For the collection of sample steaks on display in the museum, the team used human cell cultures purchased from the American Tissue Culture Collection and grew them with donated, expired blood that would have otherwise been destroyed. They preserved the final products in resin. Expired human blood is a waste material in the medical system and is cheaper and more sustainable than FBS, but culturally less accepted, Knight told Dezine. Hey mother, you're not listening to that stupid podcast again, are ya? Where's my tea? I'm sorry, dear, but Clifkas is much more important than tea. Oh, Christ. I guess I might as well listen to them. 20 minutes later. Crikey. This stuff is good. Angus, here, cheese ready, dear. Not now, mother. I got to listen to Cliffcast. Why do we say it's raining cats and dogs? You ever wondered that? I have. I don't know about you, but one of my favorite things to do is to learn new things. Before the internet and web browsers, I could scroll through stacks and stacks of musty old books sometimes to satisfy my curiosity. But whether I'm watching a documentary, reading an article, traveling or exploring, there are nearly always some wonderful, fascinating, amazing, bizarre, strange thing that makes me want to scratch my head and say, I didn't know that. I've always kind of assumed we say it's raining cats and dogs, meaning that the rain is falling so heavily that it's like a whole host of family pets are falling from the clouds. But maybe there's another meaning. So I went on our old friend Google, and here's what I found. Raining cats and dogs. The origin, 17th century. The story is this. Some speculate that this phrase arose in the 17th century as a result of poor drainage systems in Europe. During heavy rain showers, drains disgorged their contents of any animals' corpses that may have accumulated. This occurrence is documented in Jonathan Swift's 1710 poem, Description of a City Shower, in which he describes, Filth of all hues and odours seemed to tell what street they sailed from by their sight and smell. They had each torrent drives with rapid force, from Smithfield or Poulter's shape their course, and in huge confluence joined at Snow Hill Ridge, fall from the conduit prone to Holborn Bridge. Sweepings from butchers' stalls, dung, guts, and blood, drowned puppies, stinking sprats, all drenched in mud. Dead cats and turnip tops come tumbling down the flood. Hmm. So there you go, folks. That's raining cats and dogs. It's a good thing our drainage systems are a lot better now, isn't it? I think so. But just in case, you might not want to leave Fido or Fluffy out in a rainstorm, eh? Howdy y'all, Clem here. I suppose you're wondering why I'm wasting your time. Well, I reckon you'd be looked on right kindly like if you were to tune in to Cliffcast. 
And you know what? It's available on an internet near you. Yep. Have a good day, you hear? And now, Jokes of the Week. Jokes of the Week. Oh, now that's funny. That's not funny. So today, I thought instead of all the long-form jokes, I'd just tell you a few one-liners. Okay, so here we go. A teacher asked her class to name something great about Switzerland. There was some hesitation. Finally, Johnny stood up and said, I don't know, miss, but the flag's a big plus. <laughs> a bear walks into a pub and says, I'd like a scotch and... Cola. The bartender looked at the bear and said, Why the big paws? The bear replied, I don't know, guess I was just born with them. <laughs> Parallel lines have so much in common. It's a shame they'll never meet. Someone stole my mood ring. Now I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> my grandfather has the heart of a lion and a lifetime ban at the zoo. <laughs> Women only call me ugly until they find out how much money I make. Then they call me ugly and poor. <laughs> I broke my finger last week. On the other hand, I'm okay. <laughs> Apparently someone in London gets stabbed every 52 seconds. Poor bastard. <laughs> A Roman legionnaire walks into a bar, holds up two fingers and says, Five beers, please. <laughs> Someone stole my Microsoft Office and they're going to pay. You have my word. <laughs> I tried to catch fog yesterday. Missed. How does Moses make his coffee? He brews it. <laughs> what did the pirate say when he turned 80? <laughs> What's the difference between a well-dressed man on a bike and a poorly dressed man on a unicycle? Attire. <laughs> I entered 10 puns in a pun contest, hoping one would win, but no pun in 10 did. <laughs> Good day, this is Sean Connery. Sure, I like to drink martinis and shag beautiful women. But my favorite pastime is listening to Cliff Cast. It's very classy. If you're looking to contact the show, you can email me at cliffcastme at gmail.com. That email again is cliffcastme at gmail.com. Well, that's it for another show. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're all keeping safe and healthy and well. I really appreciate you listening. You're a lovely audience. Bye now. See you next time. <laughs>